You're listening to TIP. You have to go back to what really matters. What matters is that you're able to grow earnings by at least 15% year on year for 10 years. You're at low multiples and you're improving your businesses. Of course, being founder-led, having an owner-oriented mentality would be, would be a key factor there. But it's not about the founder-led. It's about the fact that you're a good business and you made your business better and you grew over time. On today's episode, I chat with Dede Aisan. Dede is a chief investment officer of Jenga Investment Partners. I first heard of Dede when I came across his book, Global Outperformers. I researched it extensively, and I came away with a lot of takeaways. Most books and research I've come across, which discuss high-performing stocks, deal only with Western countries. What stood out to me about Dede's study was the breadth of multi-baggers out there when you simply expand your geography. One of my favorite insights from this conversation was the power of small businesses. Dede cut his 10 beggars off at a minimum of 50 million in market cap to start off with. But he told me if he removed that restriction, the amount of 10 beggars would go up substantially, almost doubling the sample size. On today's episode, we'll discuss the importance of diversifying geographical investment knowledge for discovering new opportunities and achieving multi-bagger returns, the role of margin expansion in micro and nano cap stocks, strategies for identifying multi-baggers in turnaround and cyclical sectors, the value of understanding the Indian markets, revealing the untapped potential of seemingly mundane multi-bagger stocks, and much, much more. Now, sit back and relax as we get right into this week's episode with Dede Aisan. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Day onto the show. Day, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Day authored a highly insightful book called Global Outperformers, where he researched businesses that returned 1,000% or more to shareholders in just one decade. Additionally, he is the CEO of Jenga Investment Partners, which invests in global public and private equity markets. I want to get into the details of how Jenga invests, but first I want to begin by discussing your research. I'd love to know why you decided to do this research and what previous book, people, or research inspired you to do it. Yeah, so I think generally in any career I was going to get into, I always wanted to study the successful stories. So in investment, I'll be studying successful stocks or the people. And with global outperformance, what we did was that we had 100% focus on the stocks that did well over the last 10 years. In terms of the timing, I originally planned to do it ending 2021. But when I started the research, there were just so many stocks doing well. And I just felt I wasn't going to have a good perspective of the truth, basically. And so I shifted it to a year after being 2022. And the number of our performance was basically cut in half. So I felt the research would have a lot more authentic quality per se. And in terms of what inspired me, I mean, there are lots of research of similar content, but two, just in terms of the two I came across that I thought were quite helpful. One was Chris Myers' 100 Baggers, which is an amazing book. And the other one was a research, I think, The Makings of a Multi-Bagger by Alta Fox, a hedge fund based in the US. They also did something similar, but both were really insightful for me in terms of while I was writing the book. 
yeah, when I read it, that's kind of what I would have imagined you you would have been inspired by. The only other one that I could think of that comes even close, but it's a lot older, is the one that inspired Chris Mayer, which was the Thomas Phelps book. But yeah, I absolutely love the research. So how long were you working on it for? From when I started doing the research to when I finished the first draft, it took about three months um, over the summer um, last year. So, I mean, generally at Django, what I try to do is like every summer, I try to do like a big project. Some get published, some don't. Um, last year's one got published and usually over the summer break. So that's why I was doing the summer. So are you working on a big project right now then? Yeah, we are. But I think it's going to take this and next year's summer to produce, um, not just one summer. Awesome. Can't wait. I hope that's published. So you mentioned that you restricted the study to only include businesses with over $50 million market caps as businesses with lower valuation than that would have little interest from institutions. How would including businesses with less than $50 million market caps have affected your results? So actually the companies were less than $550 million as of May 31st, 2022. So how you get to 50 million is 50 million compounded 1000% would give you 550 million. So that's actually the starting point. But if we included all types of companies, so even companies of market value of 1 million, what happens is that the number of our performers goes from 446 to 935. And when you look within the nano cap space, what we had when we looked at companies worth less than 50 million was that they were overrepresented. So I think the number was about 67% of all the outperformers came from just that segment, even though they only represented 47% of, of the universe. Yeah. So that makes sense that you would have eliminated them. And so I guess if you had looked at the results and the, you know, the different segments that you put, you know, cyclicals and stuff like that, would the nano caps have fit into there or was it just an absolute madness of different types of businesses? I mean, there was, there was a madness of different types of businesses. And I tried to quantify which were turnarounds and which were cyclicals. But I mean, what happens is that you have businesses that shift among those different segments. So initially, it's a special situation and then becomes a turnaround. And then next minute is a compounder. So it's hard to like put them by number in those buckets. Um, but what I would say is in terms of the nature of the journey they used in get, becoming an outperformer, I mean, it was quite a wide range of them. So increasing operating margins was a big driver for a large percentage of your outperformers. You mentioned three main drivers of margin expansion. One, effects of volume growth on fixed costs. Two, pricing power. And three, reduction in sales from less profitable products or services. What were some of the identifiable signals investors should look for to identify businesses that are currently going through or have the opportunity to expand margins? So the margin expansion, growth, and low valuations are the main big factors in terms of getting to being an outperformer. And when you look at margin expansion, you basically can bucket them into two areas. One are internal factors, where it's in the company's control, and then you have external factors. So from an external factor, I mean, one of the industries that had a lot of outperformers were the salmon companies, and that was all driven external. So you have the price that all the companies have to follow. So it's a commodity business. And in that situation, what you're really trying to understand is how sustainable is this price for? So with salmon, you can't wake up the next morning and say you want to build your own farm. You know, you need to have the right aquatic regions. And I think really only Norway and Chile really have that at a global scale. So you have supply that's a natural constraint. And then on the demand side, salmon is growing, giving people are looking for more healthier sources of meat. It's not going anywhere. So 
in terms of understanding the cycle, that's a good signal. So you want to be in those industries where supply is constrained for certain reasons, demand's growing, even though it's cyclical. And at the same time, you're focused on companies that have mainly low cost advantage, room for growth, room to drive volume and they're just doing the simple things really well and a lot of companies exercise that and I guess on the more internal factors you're looking at it more from a micro perspective you're really trying to understand what exactly is going on in this business and why it can drive you know operating margins and I mean there are three main sources the best companies were the ones that were able to combine the different internal factors so for example they're able to raise prices mainly driven by having better products or services they were able to drive volume by expanding to new markets and all sorts i think those were the businesses that really had you know really high performers and with them it's just understanding how the business works how it functions and why exactly they're raising prices is this something that's sustainable or this is something that's unsustainable. And you have businesses that raise prices, but it's not very sustainable after two or three years. And you want to focus on those ones that can do that over the longer term. And that's mainly driven by having better products, having better services. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you can use, I guess, a screener, right? To just look at businesses with specific operating margins and then just look at their history to see if they're increasing. What other qualitative, I mean, you just mentioned if the business is selling an incredible product that's just better than its competitors, that might be a signal that they'd be able to keep their operating margins high or increasing over a specific period of time. What other qualitative factors did a lot of these outperformers show you? I mean, I'll give some examples of some of them that should operate in a margin expansion. I mean, so we, one of the buckets were the ones where they shifted into new products. So a good example was Neste. Neste, that's a, a Finnish renewable. Well, initially they focused on just diesel. And then what happened was that I think in late 2009 and 2010, they started going into renewable diesel through their own proprietary technology. And then what that happened was they allowed them to earn more margins per volume, so per liters or barrel, you'd say. And and also, there was a lot of subsidy because, again, this was a product that was actually creating value for society, really. So there was a lot more subsidy flowing into these areas for Neste. Now, what then happened was that when you look at the percentage of their revenue, if you look through the years, the renewable diesel was going up while diesel itself was just going down. And when you go to about 2017, I think it started becoming the majority. And then you really saw the margins go up. So I think margins went from like 1% or so, or 2% to like 12, 13%. And I mean, you're able to get half of the, you know, our performance in terms of getting to 1000% from just switching products. So in that situation, you're really trying to understand the competitive edge the new product has over rivals. So Neste again, they were the first mover in the industry and they still have that market leadership so when you're thinking about it from a competitive view it's still strong another example i guess of margin expansion was the ones that they didn't really change their product they just impacted the non-product factors so again another good example here will be britannia in india so they make biscuits i know it sounds weird um making biscuits and telling you it's going to return 1000 percent, but they made biscuits in in india and of course india is a really large population a billion plus and what these guys did was they had legacy biscuit brands that had been around since 1800s but a mixture of competition from Nestle and some other players and also internal mismanagement made their margins go down. A new management came in, 
they kind of shifted their focus from just tier one to tier two cities in India. They renewed different partnerships with distributors. They cut down on wholesale, expanded more on like direct to consumer, and then also launched new products that were higher margin. And when you look at the combination of those factors, that's why they were able to, you know, grow revenue and grow earnings over time. And of course, get that margin expansion. And um, there were other examples as well. I mean, you had companies like Tesla where, you know, I mean, I didn't introduce Tesla to anyone, but like you had companies like Tesla where they had a better control of their cost by building more plants and going expanding into China when they built like you know their plants in China they're able to control cost better and just grow volume and that's why they were able to get that margin expansion from loss making to profitability excellent examples thank you so your study showed a very high representation of India were outperformers with 91 total names, which was about 20% of the uh, total sample size. This is a country that has fascinated me, but I must admit it's far outside of my circle of competence. How do you view investing in countries that are outside of your native land in terms of being competent enough in their culture, business practices, and social governance, et cetera? So from a personal level, Every company I invest in is kind of outside my native land because, I mean, I'm from Nigeria. And I mean, since 2016, Nigeria has been 0% of my portfolio. So I'm kind of forced to like learn about, you know, different countries and culture. But I think this question, so before like I focus more on India, I think this question can be boiled down into two key things. So one is that is the fact that human nature is human nature regardless of where you go. So whether you're in India, China, the US, people go through periods of over-optimism and they go through periods of over-pessimism. And it's being able to understand that I think you've solved 30% of the problem. So if you look at Asia, for example, you had Japan that had this mega bubble up until the late 80s, where the PE went up to 60 times earnings. You didn't need to like understand the culture or understand, you know, financial statements to see that the market was was overvalued by just looking at the top down view. It's quite clear. And same thing when you go to Japan again, you look at 2012. You could tell that these things were undervalued. You see companies growing 20% earnings growth rate at eight times PE ratio. I mean, that doesn't, that screams or undervalued, especially if it's sustainable. So I think from a top-down view, that's like, you've done half of the work. Now, in terms of micro, so one of the fun things that, one of the things I really enjoyed with the study was that it forced me to really look at places that I might not look from, a, I guess, from my own portfolio, just because I don't understand things. And what I realized was that the really good companies, regardless of where they were listed, they provided their investors or shareholders with enough information. I think anyone could make decisions. So, I mean, I remember going through M3. M3 is a Japanese company. I mean, their financials were all in Japanese. But if you look at their prospectus from 1999 or 2000, it's so clear what exactly they were trying to do. So they basically built this healthcare platform where you can do all sorts of things. And what they were trying to do was make healthcare less time consuming, more cheap and a lot more efficient. And it was so clear in terms of the new product launches, the investments they were making, how management were thinking, regardless of the culture. And same thing with the companies in India. I mean, again, look at Britannia. When the new management came in 2013, I believe, like it was really clear in terms of what exactly he wants to do to get Britannia back into market leadership. And if you look through the years, he followed up on that. So regardless of it being in India or it being, I guess, a frontier market, I think good management will make it clear to shareholders in terms of what they want to do. But with that said, I mean, it's at the end of the day, you still have to understand how things work locally. And I think that just comes from experience, reading things, speaking to local investors, speaking to local managers, and just building that competence over time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense about, I guess, kind of the way you're explaining that the management in these companies in other countries is really, really, really important. 
you know, not that the business obviously isn't, but you know, if you find a management team that seems trustworthy and maybe even has a really good track record, that's definitely going to help kind of remove a lot of the worries that investing in a foreign land would have. Yeah. I mean, the track record is so important because when I'm looking at, when I was doing the whole project from 2012 to 2022, I was trying to remove myself from 2022. I take myself back to 2012 and really follow on that track record before 2012 and also after. And I mean, it was just quite clear that a lot of these companies were consistent with what they were doing and with the goals they had set. And I think if you spend a lot more time focused on that track record, even with turnarounds, I think you'll be able to get some value out of that, regardless of the country you're in. So reflecting on your research, how many of these outperformers do you feel were predictable back in 2012? There are some big winners in super highly cyclical industries. Do you think that investors without an in-depth understanding of, say, mining or chemical industries would have been able to find some of these businesses early enough to capture the 1000% upside? I think this question would be a scope for the next book, <laughs> which would be easier to find. I mean, it really depends on who you are and what your competence is. So from a personal angle, I really enjoy investing in consumer discretion and staples. One, because I like looking at products and seeing what people are buying. And I find it easier than, you know, diving into like chemicals that I have no idea about. So in terms of who I am, I might find consumer easier than industrials. Now, someone who has an industrial background, they might find looking at chemicals or airports easier to understand than consumers. So I think it's, I mean, you know, legendary investors like Warren Buffett preach these things. And I think it's really important with our performers. I mean, it's easy to like look at our performers in industries and say, yes, I should have caught this, but it's very hard. And the reason why it's very hard is if you look at a lot of the outperformers, especially actually in industrials, is that a lot of them fell 50% before 2012, or they, they had this wide swings as a whole sector. And with cyclicals, with compounders, you can get away without understanding the competitor because you've spotted something that's just so unique and you think it's going to work over the long term where you're not really worried about what competitors do. Whereas with cyclicals or with turnarounds, you really have to understand the macro and how the macro affects the industry and then also how competitors affect that company. So you, have, you need a much deeper understanding of why this would change. And I think with cyclicals, with turnarounds, I, I don't really think there's a shortcut with building that competency with the industry. And I mean, when I was looking at the comments that had done very well, and I was trying to make that self-reflection, I think one of the lessons for me was if I'm going to invest in cyclicals, I really need to spend a lot of time trying to understand how the cycle works and what drives the demand, the supply of that cycle. I don't think there's any shortcut to that. I think everyone has to just learn that work. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers, and with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. 
Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah. So outside of cyclicals, which investment style outside of compounders, turnarounds, stalwarts, and special situations do you anecdotally find the most predictable after conducting the study? You mentioned you really like consumer durables, but yeah, I'd love to get some more light on that. Is this from an industry, geography, or just investment style perspective? Yeah, like I guess an industry. I mean, again, for me, industry, I thought the consumer companies were more predictable. So, I mean, some of the ones from the top of my head, I think if you looked at Britannia and you tried to understand what exactly management were going to do, I think it was kind of clear that they had a superior product. So, I mean, with turnarounds and cyclicals, you're really trying to understand, well, especially with turnarounds, you're really trying to understand if this company has a superior product. I mean, you could, the other things can be solved really quickly, but if that company doesn't have a superior product, it's going to be very hard to achieve a turnaround because it's just so much work. So I think that's the first question. Do they have a superior product? And I think answering that question, when you have access to the customers, they might be your friends, family, might even be yourself. I think it's much easier to answer that question instead of like trying to answer if this renewable diesel product is better than alternatives. I mean, I have no clue about that. So I think from that perspective, consumer and businesses where you have access to the customers or the supply chain would be the easier ones to understand. The most complicated ones were the ones where they were diversified across different areas. So, I mean, some of the case studies we did were businesses where they had several segments. So, I mean, one that comes up from my head was Hypoport. So we did a case, we did some case studies in the book and Hypoport, it's a German company. They basically have like a brokerage platform across real estate, insurance, and like a bunch of financials. Trying to understand, I mean, even though I, I could see all the annual reports and I could see all that data and I asked myself, looking back in 2012, will I have predicted this was going to be a 10 bagger? The answer still no, because we're just doing so many things. I'm really just trying to understand that mode without being, uh, from an outsider perspective, it's just so tough. So I think it's easier. I mean, again, investors, we 
with some, I myself, me included, you sometimes try to overcomplicate things where you think an outperformer might be this loss-making company that's going to do this something so unique and so complex or this very complex business that only you understand what exactly they do from the annual report. Sometimes you overcomplicate things. Sometimes it could just be simpler businesses. And I think it's just easier to also focus on, on those type of businesses. There were, there were so many examples of companies where they had two, three core products in one industry. They were already profitable. Um, it was very clear. They had a track record of, you know, having a star product that rivals just couldn't replicate and they turned out to be outperformers. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what you were talking about, Buffett, and, you know, he just absolutely loves simple businesses, right? And if you can find businesses that have, you know, one or two or three core products that are likely to get better and better over time, you know, I think that your research shows that that can drive a business to do really, really well for a really long period of time. There's so many examples of them. I mean, I I look back now and I'm like, I should have spent a lot more time focusing on certain areas. I mean, one of the examples we did in the book on Keisha was Antasports. And Antasports, I know in China, there was a discount in China, so that obviously impacted its journey to becoming an art performer. But they literally did really simple things. They sold apparel in China, population of more than 1 billion people, and a consistent 20% EB margins. And it was very clear that they're going to end that 20% EB margins regardless of what happened. Founder-led, very simple business. And it was quite a straightforward journey for them achieving that. A very interesting quote from the book was, among the companies that returned more than 1,000% between 2002 to 2012, only 23 of 300 companies were among the 446 outperformers between 2012 and 2022. Did you observe any specific traits in businesses that returned 10x in two consecutive decades? Yeah, 10x in two consecutive decades, it's the odds are against you. I mean, basically one in one in 10 maximum would and 10x in two decades. So I think the buy and hold forever philosophy and expect, you know, outperformance year in year for 20 years, it's going to be very tough. So in terms of the businesses among those 23 businesses, when I looked at them, one thing stands out, they came from one country, most of them. I want you to guess which one it is. India. Yeah, I was in, yeah. I think 18 of the 23 came from India. And outside India, you had like five businesses. One of them was Amazon, um, of course. Um, another one was Old Dominion. Freight. But when I looked at the ones in India, so all the companies apart from Amazon had a market cap of less than 100 million. So Relaxo Footwear, it's one of India's largest footwear brands. They had a market cap of just 4 million in 2002. And between 2002 and 2022, they grew revenues 18 fold, earnings grew like 23 fold, something like that. And these were just businesses that were able to grow for a very long time consistently. One of the more crazy examples was Vitek Software. So Vitek Software, they basically, they're like constellation software where they just invest in software businesses, buy new businesses, expand into more verticals in very niche business critical areas. And over that period, I mean, they grew, they grew their revenues 59 fold, I believe, from like, yeah, they grew their revenue 59 fold and earnings grew like 188 fold between those 20 years. And you know, these are really small businesses that they were profitable year on year for very long periods of time. I mean, Amazon was the odd one out in terms of they were quite big when they started that joint in 2002. But then, then again, you have to remember that Amazon is a very, very big market. So, I mean, I, I guess the summary is you look for businesses that have their competitive edge in big markets where they have small market shares and have room to grow. That was the magic formula, you would say, with those 10x in two decades um, companies. 
So there are a few massive turnarounds in your study. You already mentioned Britannia Industries, and then a couple of those ones were Trex and Adobe. So for investors who are interested in turnarounds, what were the primary characteristics to search for when looking for future turnarounds? And have you recently researched any developing turnarounds that interest you? Yeah. So, I mean, the first part of the question on like lessons from turnaround. So again, at the end of the book, I put together 10 lessons I thought I learned that were really important. Um, not Some of them are quite common, like everyone would know them, but like with, with turnarounds, the framework to use for turnarounds I thought was useful is called the distance analysis. And one of the famous investors, Nick Sleep, he's actually used that framework in terms of his thinking on investing. So the distance or the journey per se analogy is you want to think about these investments from a distance, time and speed angle. So with distance, you want investments that can go very far. So a very far investment will be a business that in their best scenario, they earn 10% EBIT margins, but right now they're earning 1%. So if they get things right, they can go from 1% EBIT margins to 10% EBIT margins really quickly. From a speed angle, you want things that can go really quickly. And what that happens is that reduces the journey that you need to do to get there. And then again, when you think about it from a turnaround angle, these are businesses where the problems are not product driven. They're either marketing or supply chain or cycles just turned a lot. So a a good example here in the US was Trex. So Trex, they make alternative wood. I know that sounds very boring, but when you actually look at the journey of how they became a 10 bagger, it's so interesting. So the founder, the original founder of Trex had developed this product where he combined um, sawdust and shredded plastic. And they basically reinvented a whole product called alternative wood. And I think Mobile bought them and then they spun off and then they went public and they had about 20% EB margins just in the years leading to the financial crisis. And then when the financial crisis happened, they fell to like 0.8%. So when you're thinking about it from a turnaround, you're asking yourself, what is the journey it needs to do to get back to where it was before? So now if you look at the margins, it's fallen to 1% and you're asking yourself, can you get back to 20%? The first thing is to look at the competitors. If you had looked at the competitors in 2012, you'll have realized there were no new entrants to the market. Trex, even though they were failing or struggling, they still had that market leadership. That makes the journey of being a turnaround so much easier because you're not really thinking about, do I need to change my product? You just need to like reorganize cost, cut down in certain areas, improve your marketing process. And that's exactly what new management did. And if you look at the journey, they went from, you know, having poor margins back to where they were in 2005. And it became I think they went back to 18% EB margin and then became a 10-bagger just from margin expansion alone. Um, some other examples are even easier. So again, I mentioned like Antisports. So Antisports, they do apparel in China. And then what had happened in China was that in 2008, after the Olympics, all the Chinese brands in apparel had expanded very aggressively to just get market share in the years building up to the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, people, tourists left China, you know, people were less excited about sports. The market basically crashed. So if you looked at Antisports, you'll have noticed in 2012, their share price fell by 75%. But where it got really interesting was that even though the share price fell by, you know, 75%, the EBIT margin only fell by 2%. So it still earned 18% EBIT margins and was PE ratio fell to like four times. If you compare that to their rivals like Leaning and some other players, they went loss making. So the journey of getting back, you know, to where they were before was going to be so much easier. Why? Because they had cash on their balance sheet. They were still profitable. They had much better run stores. And, you know, the management realized that and they just 
worked on improving Antisports back to where they were before. So the journey to being an outperformer was a lot less complicated than leaning, for example, who had to like raise capital and get private equity money and, you know, invent new products, that sort of thing. So I think overall with turnarounds, if you utilize that distance journey and framework, and keep it easier for yourself where it's less product-driven turnarounds, it's so much easier to really understand the journey to getting there. And I guess from my portfolio, I don't, I used to spend a lot of time on turnarounds. Um, right now, we have shifted. I mean, I've always looked at compounders, but our portfolio is more weighted towards compounders. But in South Africa, we had two turnarounds that um, we invested in. One was MTN Group, which is the largest telecom player in Africa. And when I look at, when I look, go back to the distance journey analysis framework, MTN, they had fallen COVID and um, there's a lot of pessimism in terms of Nigeria because of oil prices crashing during COVID. So as a turnaround, and these are more macro problems, not product problems. On the product level, people still use mobile money and it's still growing. And also data, internet is still growing as well. So when you look at telecoms, it's a declining industry in most regions, where in Africa it's still growing because the telecoms have actually taken market share from banks from a fin financial services lens. And then also internet is still underpenetrated there. So there's still room to grow that data volume. So in terms of a turnaround, it was easier to achieve. And that was a turnaround that we invested in three years ago. And with ShopRite, it's the largest retailer in Africa. They made some missteps in terms of their growth model, and they expanded into lots of regions outside South Africa. So what they did was that they scaled back that growth outside South Africa. So in countries like Nigeria, what they did was that they focused on South Africa and then just doubled down on their supply chain. So from a difficulty of a turnaround, it was quite easy where they just had to just shut down operations, just focus on what they did best. And I mean, that was a successful turnaround as well. Excellent. Decreasing debt and increasing operating margins were two of the big growth drivers that can be screened for. What are some other screenable metrics that you think would help investors search for future outperformers outside of, say, just evaluation? So just before answering the question, I used to be very dependent on screens where I look at businesses reducing debt or increasing revenues, that sort of thing. But when I did this study, I realized screens is looking at past data. And the problem is that if you're screening companies on a debt level where they've fallen from 60% to 20%, let's say debt to capital ratio, that's good in the past. But what you're thinking about is the future. And if that company ends up doing an acquisition next year where they need to like raise debt for and debt goes back up, you know, that screen hasn't really helped. So I think one of the lessons that I learned from you know, just doing the global performance book. I think the best way to really screen for companies, just look at things from an A to Z lens and then just have like a two minute research process where you just quickly look at a business and you try to figure out where they sit and if they can, I guess, achieve good returns. So I think that was one of my takeaways from a screening lens. But that said, if you have to screen because of time, I think profitability is a good way to filter out companies. So again, if you look at the outperformers, 82% of the companies that ended up outperforming in the 10 years, they were already profitable. So you could basically say four in five outperformers will be profitable. So you could quickly remove companies that are just unsustainably unprofitable from that list. And then also, you also want to see some signs of future growth going forward. I think growth is really important. Now, the problem with growth is that you can't really screen future growth because you could be growing 30% in the prior five years, but in the next five years, you might not even grow um, your earnings. So it's something that you just want to be really focused on and ask yourself, can this business raise volume? 
can so can they grow volume? Can they raise prices, or can they reduce loss making or less profitable segments and expand their more profitable segments? And the answer is none of those three. From your five minute initial due diligence, I think just moving to the next case. You did a good job of separating industries in your research and showcase that certain industries just aren't great outperformers from your data set. Do you think poor performing industries will mean revert and produce more outperformers in the next decade after 2022? And if so, which industries or themes seem ripe for the future? So from an outperformance lens, there's some industries that are at a disadvantage. So when we talk about outperformers, we're really looking for profitable growth. Now, for some industries, it's hard to actually achieve profitable growth at a fast rate. One, it could be regulation. So when you think about utilities, they're just not built to grow. And because if they're growing by raising prices, like when you think about the political climate and regulatory risk, they're going to be on their toes and they're going to have to cut prices to improve life for consumers. So when you look at utilities, that was the worst segment, only five outperformers and all five were renewable businesses. And because renewable has a lot of support from a subsidy lens in terms of governments, it was able to grow. But that's not going to last forever. So if you remove the renewable segment from utilities, there was no outperformer. And I don't say that mean reverting because I think it's going to be that the case. So I'm not saying, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in utilities. I think if you invest in utilities, you want it to be more value driven where on average they trade 10 times earnings, but there's been some pessimism and now they fall into like four or five times earnings. So you could see them doubling or tripling in that sense. But expecting 10 baggers from, you know, gas or water producing companies, I don't think that's going to happen. And same thing goes for like financial segments where you look at banks and insurers. So insurance as an industry, most companies have to pick between good combined ratios of good profitability with growth. So if you're growing, there's a high chance that you're going into you know weaker profile customers to insure. And that has a long-term problem. So insurance, though, I think there was only one outperformer from insurance, and that was a Saudi company. And Saudi, if you look at that 10 years, they had the fastest insurance market, life insurance market in the world. I think it was growing about 9% per year. And Bupa, Arabic, which was the outperformer from insurance, did really well in terms of being able to drive innovation. And it was really the innovation in the product that was able to drive sales and profits. So, but that's not the case across all insurance markets, either sub-markets or geographies. So it's going to be very difficult for you to see um, insurance produce outperformance going forward. But if you look at financials, it was mainly the non-banks and there's only one bank. So banks, you know, it's also not a great place to look for for our performance. And I don't think that's going to mean revert in the future. But again, financials, I think you have to look for places where they're not under the same regulatory scrutiny as banks and insurers. So I think that will be a great place to invest in when you look going forward. So you think about financial exchanges, you think about research houses or loan platforms. I think that could be interesting. The other segments that did really well I think those were information technology, healthcare, materials. I think if you look at the 10 years, there was a lot of multiples expansion in information technology and sub-segments like semiconductors. If you look at 2002, 2012, there was only one outperformer from semiconductors. And then in the decade after, there was 49. So it's very clear things go up and down with semiconductors. So again, the mistake people make is that this has worked for the last 10 years, it's going to work for the future. Not really the case. It goes up and down. And you really want to understand why exactly it's going up and down. So I think things like semiconductors would have to go down at some point and then come back up later. And it's just 
being realistic with that assumption, I think you'll save yourself a lot of trouble. And then lastly, with materials, that was a surprise for me because materials, I really see them as commodities. They go up and down. But then if you look at the performance, it did really well. I think about 15% of our performance came from materials. And in this case, what we had was that you had materials that had either cost advantage, so they were the lowest cost producers in their industry, or they were diversifying into, I guess, more advanced materials where you had to put in a lot more technology or innovation. And that was that allowed them to, I guess, build their moat in the industry and also drive volume growth. So from that angle, when you think about where technology is growing and where the world's growing, I think things are becoming a lot more technical. So industries like materials and industrials, even in a world where we're moving more into technology, I still think there'll be room for growth there. So I'll still say, look at those segments, even though they did really well over the last 10 years. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure ready RAV4 available with all wheel drive Your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Rob's Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, 
Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Excellent. 36% of your old performers had negative returns in 2011 to 2013, meaning if you'd owned them before that period and sold due to declining price fluctuations, you would have missed out on a hell of a lot of upside. I'm interested in knowing if these businesses had easily visible and improving profits in that 2011 to 2013 time period. And, and a couple of names that you mentioned were NVIDIA, Netflix, Anta Sports, uh, Salmar, and Abbott India. Yeah, I mean, there was a mixture. So the cyclical businesses, what happened during that period was that they were actually falling in in profits. So in that bucket, some of the cyclical businesses were the salmon stocks. So salmon, I believe, had fallen by 60% in terms of earnings during that period. And same thing with the semiconductor companies. So NVIDIA, that's a giant now, was unprofitable in 2012, I believe. So at that period, that was when I think semiconductor sales fell by minus 2%. And then the fall was even more drastic with GPUs because gaming fell that year in terms of PC sales and PlayStation sales as well. So NVIDIA had done quite badly from a profit lens and also from a share price lens. Now, when you look at those cyclical companies, again, the frameworks are very different. When you look at those type of cyclical companies, you're looking for technical barriers to entry. So you're looking for, you want to be in those cyclical sectors where a new player can't just come in. So Apple cannot just start building their own GPUs. Or if you look at salmon, a chicken or a poultry farmer can't just say, I want to start you know, producing salmon the next day. You actually have to have the right aquatic regions and not everywhere has that. Now, by being in those technical barriers to entries, you're in a much safer situation. Why? Because the existing players are more likely to still be there when the cycle turns rather than new players coming in and flooding the market. The other example, I guess, where companies were like you had another group of companies where it wasn't necessarily cycles. It was more, I guess, product lens or micro factors. And um, you had lots of examples there. So like Netflix, you know, shifting more to streaming. The economics initially didn't work, then it started working. And as they grew volume, it was quite clear that the economics are going to work. And in that case, it's more qualitative than quantitative because rather than looking at, you know, how this business has done from a DVD lens, you're really trying to understand exactly what happens with streaming. Why does streaming work? Why as a user and why am I going to spend $10, $15 per month on streaming? Why are they going to be able to keep content costs low? How reputable is this as a business? And I guess for those type of business, you're more focused on the qualitative factors. And if I, I think for some of them, if you spend a lot more time there, you're able to get a better sense of a competitive advantage over their rivals. So like with Netflix, for example, they literally created that segment. And it was only up until 2019 where you had players like Apple, um, Disney. And as you can see how the share price performed after that, you see it struggled for a bit. That's really when it became much more of a problem. I'd like to move on to learning a little bit more about Jenga Investment Partners. Can you go over the evolution from an investment club to a hedge fund? And how did it start? And how does your investment strategy differ from other funds? I personally started investing at the age of 10. Um, that was really where my journey started. And it was f- through my dad. He used his savings to buy stocks. And then he told me to buy stocks because it's a great way to make long-term investments. And I bought f- a few stocks in Nigeria. And then four years later, some of them had quadrupled in price. And I told myself, you know, this is so easy. <laughs> Why don't I spend all my time doing this? And then I realized it's not that easy. But during that whole journey of 
understanding more stocks, I realized I actually fell in love with just understanding how businesses worked. And in university, I started an investment club where I was investing for friends in university and family and later people I didn't know. And what happened or what caused that transition was really just a deep passion. When you have a passion for something, you want to take it more seriously, like a football, you know, kid, you know, who plays football at home. You're like, you know, I'm so I'm good at this. Why don't I, you know, play for an f- actual club? So, I mean, that was what happened. And after university, I, you know, I met people in the industry who were able to help out on the operational side of the business and then were able to take it, you know, into something that's regulated and more serious. From a strategy lens, we are global long-only equities, so we look at public stocks um, around the world. I mean, we have no industry or geography barriers, so we can look anywhere, but we will look at businesses that have a market cap of about $50 million as a strategy. In terms of, I guess, what we do, I, what I would say is we try to do the little things slightly better. So how we understand companies, the questions we ask, the curiosity we show when we're looking at and trying to understand businesses, where we look for the facts, how we stress test the facts and the insights. So that's what we really try to do. I think one of the mistakes is a lot of younger investors that they try to reinvent the wheel. And um, what I've learned is that you don't really need to reinvent the wheel. What you really need is consistency, discipline. And that's really just what I try to focus on as an investor. What lessons from your study on global outperformers had the biggest impact on how you run the fund now? Oh, there were so many of them. But I think, so I think I'll start off from a geography lens. So I think one of the struggles as an investor is that you have, as much as you're thinking about return on your investment, you also need to be thinking about return on time. And you need to make sure return on time, Bill Ackman says this, the return on brain capacity. So the amount of energy you're spending trying to understand an investment, you want to make sure that you're in the highest return factors. And there are only two ways to really know if you're, I guess, in those right buckets. And that's either by studying what successful investors are currently doing. So looking at what Warren Buffett is doing and other key good investors are doing, or you're looking at what has worked in the past and asking yourself, why has this worked and if it will keep working? So by doing global outperformance, I was able to answer that second question by really trying to understand what exactly was working and why it was working. So for example, it was really clear to me that I needed to spend a lot more time as a global investor, understanding what's going on in Asia. And it's not just because Asia had 59% of all outperformance. It's understanding why exactly it had those outperformance, where exactly they were based. They were, of course, in the smaller companies. And within with Asia, if you look at their index returns, it's going to look very bad. So like China, for example, has returned 1.3% for the last 30 years. Now, if I tell you this market has really returned 1.3%, you're not going to want to spend that much time in terms of looking for outperformers. But again, again, China was among the top five performers from an outperformance lens. And it's about going into the smaller cap companies, having good filters to you know remove crappy companies from the good ones and spending a lot more time on the good ones. So I think that was my key lesson, knowing where exactly to focus my time on from a geography lens and also from an industry lens. I'd, I spent maybe half of my time on consumer discretion and staples. And then when I did the research, I realized, you know, I actually have to spend a lot more time on other industries, especially the ones where I think I have some circle of competence within. So that, that was my lesson from, I guess, from a top higher level. And I guess from a more micro level, or not really micro, from a strategy level was understanding that there was life beyond compounders. So I know 2021, 2020, you know, investors got really excited about the idea of compounders, businesses that grow year on year, every year. It's great. I mean, I think if you look at what's going to drive returns over the long term, I think the compounders would be the biggest drivers. But I don't think as investors, especially if you have a flexible mandate where you can look at both growth and value, I think you should also be open to cyclicals and turnarounds. 
as well. And for me as a strategy, you know, doing this research and seeing how many like great investments even came from turnarounds, biscuit makers, you know, and all these weird, simple, low-growing industries, it made me a lot more excited about the future of cyclicals and turnarounds. And and then finally, I guess the other big lesson was just basic frameworks to think about investments. So, I mean, one of the investments frameworks that I learned, I doubled down on after doing the book was this idea of value chain investing. So what happens in civilization is that every age or every decade, you have this new technology and innovation that drives or changes how we do things, either makes life cleaner, makes life more efficient, you know, you'll spend less doing the same thing. And in the last decade, one of the big top-down changes was solar, where it made how we use energy slightly less pollution-driven. So with solar, when you look at it from a bottom-up, it can be very daunting because Solar is quite cyclical. You might not realize it, but it's actually quite cyclical. And the industry is quite different from traditional oil and gas or traditional energy industries. So with solar, it's very low cost driven. So China produces like 80% of all global PVs. And if you look at you know, oil and gas, it's quite, it's more distributed globally. So India would have their own refinery, Saudi Arabia would have their own refinery, US would have their own methods, whereas with solar, it's, it's very winner-take-all market. So for me, in terms of understanding these type of industries, this is where a value chain really helps, where you try to understand exactly how the whole ecosystem works from the polysilicon chips to the inverters and, you know, the additional supply chains in solar. And by doing this in solar, you have a much, much better understanding of where the outperformers lie. And I, I feel like if you had done that value chain analysis in 2012, you will have very quickly realized that the outperformers in solar were very likely going to come from China. One, they had a lot more subsidies from the government. Two, they had a lower cost of production. Three, they had the supply chain that could allow them export globally. So one of the outperformers was a company called Solaria Energia. They're based in Spain and they initially used to make their own solar PVs, but they stopped that in 2010. If you had done that sub value chain analysis and you saw Solaria that had stopped making solar PVs and rather moved into utilities, that would have given you a lot of information that it makes sense why they're no longer producing their own PVs. Why? Because they just can't compete with China. So what they did was that they moved into installation and utilities and they were able to become an outperformer by just focusing on that and that is a lot more higher barrier because there there's that's where regulation comes into play you know government want local players in that market rather than like international players and it's much more of a struggle for a company in china to go into installing you know solar pvs in you know spanish residential roof so I mean, understanding that value chain gives you a really good understanding of why certain things have to happen for a business to be an outperformer. And that was a big lesson for me. So now when I think about industries like semiconductors or wind energy or hydrogen, I'm really focused on the value chain and really trying to look for areas where, you know, there are certain companies that can earn, you know, very strong competitive advantages over long periods of time. I really enjoyed your part on the value chain. And I'd like to actually jump into that just a little bit. What value chains are you looking at now that you know might be interesting for the next decade? Are there any types of themes or anything like that that you're seeing develop now? I mean, from a value chain, I'm still looking at solar. So what had happened with solar was that in after the pandemic, well, 2019 to 2020, 
22, there was a high run up in prices. And now there's been a fall. So I think if you look at the yen per kilo, per kg prices, it's fallen by like half in the last one year. And a lot of the stocks have fallen. And I think it's still going to fall a bit before it bounces back, just because that's how the cycles work. So I'm still looking at the solar chain just to have that understand. So even though I've written this book, I seem to do a lot more research and understanding how the, the value chain works. So I'm still, I'm still spending some time looking at, you know, solar and lithium cycle. Um, semiconductor, I think is really important when you think about the impact EA is going to have for the future. Sadly, some segments of the of the value chain have already taken off where it's very hard to see, you know, potential margin of safety going forward. But there are all the segments that I think would be indirect um, beneficiaries of any technological advancements in AI. So that's something I'm spending quite a bit of time trying to understand who are the people producing stuff or giving services to, you know, the fa- huge foundries in um, Taiwan and South Korea, where's the area for, you know, improved costs in the value chain. So that's an area that I'm spending quite a bit of time in. So you mentioned that you've kind of moved away from quantitative measuring and more to the qualitative end of things. How do you integrate the qualitative analysis into your investment process at the fund level in terms of, you know, capital allocation, management, looking at total available market? So I think with other, at the big picture level, whether you're looking qualitative or quantitative, the portfolio management is a function of two things. You're trying to reduce risk or you're trying to increase returns. Any other thing, it's a distraction. That's really what you're trying to do. Now, at a personal level, you have constraints. So you have sectors that you understand or you can actually value the risk level or the potential return level. So that's one constraint. Another might just be regions that you're just not comfortable with. So for example, some people might just not be comfortable investing in China. So you have those constraints and you have to walk around those constraints as an investor. So for me as an investor, how I'm incorporating that qualitative factor is being able to widen my circle of competence. So I'm spending a lot more time just trying to understand how different countries work. You know, why our business is growing 20% each year in India and, you know, why there's so many great Indian chemical companies and just trying to find my, spend some time just understanding, you know, how these businesses work. So I think that any investor can do that. You don't need, you know, you don't need to be an institution. You could be a retail investor and still commit a lot of your time to just expanding that circle of competence over time. So I think that for me is really the, the big way as an investor with being able to incorporate that qualitative factors in in your investment process. The second big thing is when you're trying to size up investment. So, I mean, it's one of the things I've had to learn when I was running the investment club. I learned really quickly that, you know, picking stocks is very different from managing a portfolio. And the later I learned is actually very different from also running the business as well. But from a portfolio lens, being able to size up investments, I mean, the qualitative factor, because it can really impact the risk in the business by understanding or having or putting the quality factors into your investment process, you're able to really size up investment. So when you're trying to make decisions on, shall I make this stock a 10% position or a 5% position? When do I sell? Or which will I be more strict in terms of set a target price, for example? I think the qualitative factors are a lot more important there. So I'll give you one example here. So with cyclicals, my view is that for compounders, you can be a lot more, you could be less rigid with target prices because the potential is quite wide. There are a lot of things a business can do if they keep compounding, building, going to new markets and driving volume. Whereas with price, there's a limit to how price can go. So with, if you go back to the solar panel 
um, solar cycle, for example, there's a limit really to where the solar PV prices should be. So for me, as a qualitative factor, I've put those understanding how the cycle works from a qualitative angle to really size up the pricing power potential. So if a business cycle goes above a certain price, a lot more strict as an investor that even though this is going very well and I've made money on this stock, I'm just going to sell because when it turns, it turns really aggressively and it's very easy to lose 50% of your money when that cycle turns. So for me, I mean, that that's one of my takeaways when I was trying to understand, you know, qualitative analysis and understanding cycles that I learned from global art performers. As your research highlights, many more companies underperform then outperform. Knowing that what you've learned from the study, let's invert and look at some of the underperformers. What are some of the less obvious characteristics of underperformers that you're actively trying to avoid at all costs? So first, in- inverting is like is very important. Um, so one of the most important things from the book is I actually need to invert my ideas and just stress test them. So I was actually going to write a second book called Global Underperformers, but I realized half of the book is going to be bashing companies. And I didn't want to get any legal situations where I'm insulting companies and telling them, yeah, this is bad. You've done badly for 10 years. So we pulled that off and just did global outperformers. So one of the key things I learned when I was thinking about global underperformers is that a lot more companies underperform. So when I say underperform, I mean either companies that are flat for 10 years than end up growing, you know, being 10 baggers. So I think among the 27,000 companies that were around 10 years ago, I think about 9,000 of them were flat. So either flat or they fell in that 10-year period. So about a third of them, you just didn't grow share price-wise. Now, when I think about, when when you look more at the numbers from a factor lens, there were certain characteristics that mattered more. So for example, growth was very important. So I think the number, I might be wrong here, but I think the number here was that 7% of the businesses that underperformed. So when I mean underperformed less than 0%, only 7% of them actually grew 10% earnings over that 10-year period. So basically the number is that 9 in 10 of the underperformance will be businesses that just don't grow their earnings. So for me, that really emphasizes how important earnings growth is in any investment case. So I think as an investor, I know we like to pick between value and growth. I think it's just very important that with every investment you're trying to make, except it's trading at like one times earnings or like or like two times earnings. But like if it's not trading at like some huge discount, I think it's very important to make sure that investment is going to be able to exercise some form of earnings growth. So I'll give you some, some of the companies that underperformed like in the 10-year period. So there was IBM, there was AT&T, there was Vodafone, there was General Electric. If you look at all those companies, none of them grew earnings during that 10-year period. And that's why they underperformed. It was just quite clear. So for me, you know, when you're inverting earnings growth, I think that was a very important factor. Profits was also important, but I mean, for profits and profit is, I think a lot more companies were profitable, but still underperformed. So I wouldn't say profit being just profitable is enough. I think you need that profitability, but also earnings growth and of course, low multiples. And I guess just to conclude, there's some mistakes out of when you're looking at outperformers people make. So I know a large percentage of you know outperformers were founder-led businesses. So a lot of investors are saying, I want investments with that founder-led and have high insider you know share purchases. But the I don't know, I don't have the numbers with me, but a lot of the companies that are underperformed and the ones that went to zero and went bankrupt are also founder-led businesses. So you know, you don't want to just focus on just that one 
that founder-led factor that, oh yeah, this company became an outperformer because it was founder-led, hence every founder-led business would outperform. It doesn't really work that way. You have to go back to what really matters. What matters is that you're able to grow earnings by at least 15% year on year for 10 years. You're at low multiples and you're improving your businesses. Of course, being founder-led, having an owner-oriented mentality would be, would be a key factor there. But it's not about the founder-led. It's about the fact that you're a good business and you made your business better and you grew over time. So it's very important to focus on what matters. That's why we didn't do like a big research on founder-led businesses because again, you know, it could be, you could have very wide outcomes with founder-led businesses. Dede, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about Jenga IP and your research? So our research are all on our website, which is jengaip, J-E-N-G-A-I-P.com. I tweet often on Twitter, so you could also see some of my thoughts when I'm reading earnings calls on, on Twitter if you're interested in that. And my handle is my first name underscore my last name. That's D-E-D-E underscore E-Y-E-S-A-N. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.